Hello and welcome to the Medici Podcast, episode 41, The Prince. sure to check out MediciPodcast.com for maps, bibliographies, genealogies, and more. You might especially want to consult the genealogies because I'll be dropping a lot of names in this episode. I'll do my best to make sure they're not confusing, but there are a lot of Lorenzos and Giovannis in the Medici family. I don't normally do content warnings, but for this episode, I do want to mention that a sexual assault will be brought up in this narrative. I don't go into detail, but it is out of the norm for what I usually cover, so I thought I would give a fair warning. Now, on with the episode. 1516 was a very bad year for Leo X. To paraphrase Queen Elizabeth II of England centuries later, 1516 was Leo's Annus Mirabilis. His brother Giuliano died in March, which was not only a personal loss, but a political one for the family, since Giuliano seems to have been the most politically talented and popular member of the family since his father, Lorenzo the Magnificent. Then, that summer, a monk named Bonaventura had declared himself the true angelic pope. He went on to excommunicate the pope and all the cardinals and warned that the Ottoman Turks would invade Italy before converting to Christianity thanks to the king of France. Bonaventura, whose words were fueled by his love for the lost cause of Savonarola, prophesied before a crowd in Rome that the Pope, five of the cardinals, and even the Pope's dear elephant Hanno and Hanno's handler would all die that summer. And indeed, both Hanno and the handler became sick before too long after Bonaventura's prophecy. The handler would die suddenly, although we don't really know why since the ultimate fate of the handler got less attention from people at the time than the fate of his charge. Hanno could barely breathe and struggled to move. Leo actually stayed with Hanno as much as his duties as Pope would allow and called for the best medical assistance available. As you might guess, 16th century Italy didn't really have veterinarians apart from a few specialists in the care of horses and cows. So the physicians Leo summoned had no recourse but to treat Hanno like they would any human. They diagnosed Hanno as suffering from acute constipation and gave him a laxative made from gold in a much larger dose than they would give to a human. As you also might guess, this only had the effect of helping to finish off the poor elephant. Leo was genuinely devastated. He asked Raphael to paint a mural of the elephant 
which sadly did not survive, and had Hanno buried in the Belvedere Courtyard, an open space in the Vatican, where Hanno first performed tricks to the entertainment of Leo and the dignitaries sent to witness Leo's coronation as Pope. Pope Leo himself wrote an epitaph for his dear pet, which the poet Filippo Beroaldo the Younger converted into Latin hexameters. In English, it reads, Under this great hill I lie buried, mighty elephant which the king Manuel, having conquered the Orient, sent as captive to Pope Leo X, at which the Roman people marvel, a beast not seen for a long time, and in my brutish breast they perceived human feelings. Fate envied me my residence in the blessed Latium, and had not the patience to let me serve my master a full three years. That which nature has stolen away, Raphael of Urbino, with his art, has restored. On top of all this, Leo himself continued to suffer from an anal fistula, which required several painful and no doubt humiliating surgeries. Also that year, he was struck with malaria. Although he made a full recovery, he was left completely bedridden for over two days. Things were no better on the political front. The worst blow was that Leo X had two options to help him cultivate the future of his family. His nephew, Lorenzo the Younger, the only son of his brother, Pietro, or the other branch of the family, the children of the brothers Giovanni and Lorenzo Papalano. The brothers had passed away, but still living was Lorenzo Papalano's son, Pier Francesco the Younger, who, like his father, was a less than successful banker and businessman who preferred to stay out of politics, or may have been to some extent pressured to keep out of politics by Leo's branch of the family. With his wife, Maria Sadolini, he had a son who was frustratingly to us also named Lorenzo, but fortunately he became known to history as Lorenzino, so that's the name we will go with in the future. But for now, however, he is just a two-year-old child. Then there was the only child of Caterina Sforza and Giovanni Papalano, who was originally named Ludovico, but was later renamed, what else, Giovanni. From the start, his life involved conflict. His uncle, Lorenzo the Younger, and cousin, Pier Francesco, went to the courts to try to take his inheritance from his father in order to fund their own failing businesses. Almost as if in response to his troubled circumstances, Giovanni was a juvenile delinquent. He was a poor and rebellious student, eluding his tutors in order to go off rampaging through the streets of Florence or to play in the countryside. The only adult in his life who could ever exercise any control over him was his mother, Caterina. After she died when he was seven years old, and he went into the care of his cousin, Jacopo Salviati, the husband of Lorenzo de Magnificent's oldest daughter, Lucrezia. Giovanni's behavior got even worse, and he dived into the world of Florentine street gangs. When he was 12, he got involved in a gang fight and killed a boy around his age, which was enough to get him exiled from the city. Thanks to his family connections, though, he was allowed to return less than a year later. Then he was banished for a time from Florence again, 
Although the details from the surviving court records are sketchy, he apparently lured a 16-year-old into the gardens of the Palazzo Medici, where the teenager was beaten and raped by two unidentified adult men. By the time he was 14, Giovanni went to Rome with Jacopo Salviati, who had been appointed Florence's ambassador to the papacy. There, he quickly fell in with a local Roman gang and got into a brawl with some rivals, during which he managed to kill a fully grown adult with actual combat experience. In another era and place, even with a blue blood background, Giovanni might have been in for a life as a career criminal or spent in a series of prisons and drug rehab centers. Luckily for him, though, Giovanni was instead born in 16th century Italy, where society had the perfect place for him to channel his incredibly violent energies. He became a distinguished condottiero and founded his own band of mercenaries that eventually became known as the Black Bands, so named for the colors they would wear after the eventual death of Pope Leo X. By the way, just for the sake of convenience, I'm going to refer to the Black Bands and Giovanni as Giovanni of the Black Bands, even though using these terms at this point in our narrative is a bit anachronistic. The Black Bands were the first military company on record to use the hottest new military technology, the gun known as the Arquebus, while riding horses. Ironically, given his own chaotic childhood, Giovanni as a commander was a strict disciplinarian, among other things forcing his soldiers to bathe daily and practice good hygiene in order to avoid a plague. But he was also idolized by his troops, and Giovanni led them into victory after victory. At only the age of 22, Giovanni of the Black Bands was given the title The Invincible. But even Giovanni of the Black Bands had more in his life than just war and killing. When he was 18, he married Maria Salviati, who just so happened to be Jacopo's daughter. It was a politically beneficial match. Maria was through her mother, Laclizia, the granddaughter of Lorenzo the Magnificent. So it bridged a gulf between the two branches of the Medici family, much like the earlier match proposed between Lorenzo's daughter, Luisa, and Giovanni's own father, Giovanni Papalano, was supposed to, if not for Luisa's premature death. However, the sources suggest it actually was a love match. This isn't so hard to believe since the two were very close in age. Maria was just a year older, and they had grown up together. And I suppose it's reasonable to speculate that Maria just liked a bad boy. She was even said to have admired her husband's talents at war so much that it was one of the reasons she agreed to the marriage. They would only ever have one child, named Cosimo, about whom we will hear much more later. Leo X would frequently employ Giovanni of the Black Bands. Still, though, it seems like Leo kept the other branch of the family at arm's length, likely because he never forgave them for siding with the Republican cause during the years of the Medici exile. Instead, with the death of his brother Giuliano, Leo X turned to the only adult male not committed to the church left in his side of the family. Lorenzo the Younger. Leo tried grooming Lorenzo to become the new head of the family, 
I admit in the last episode, I forgot to mention that Giuliano actually abdicated from being the unofficial leader of Florence in 1513, a few years before his death. The sources suggest he did so because of the same lack of ambition that led him to decline the chance to become the new king of Naples. But I personally suspect that Lorenzo and his mother Alfonsina pressured Giuliano and Leo to give Lorenzo a chance to shine. Unfortunately for, well, everyone, Lorenzo inherited all of his father Pietro's faults. If anything, he got a double dose of his father's flaws. Even though Lorenzo already sat on the Medici's invisible throne, he and Alfonsina pestered Leo into having Lorenzo appointed the captain of the Florentine army. Even some diehard Medici supporters balked at this. Worse than even the naked nepotism was the fact that Lorenzo was far younger than anyone who had ever held the position of captain before, at the age of 22 or 23. It didn't help that Lorenzo lacked his uncle Giuliano's knack for dealing with a government that was still ostensibly Republican. He refused to dress like a patrician, instead appearing in public decked out like a French duke. Be sure to go to MediciPodcast.com in the post highlighting this episode to see what I mean. Leo found it wasn't enough to give Lorenzo instructions on what policies he should pursue, or what allies he should cultivate, as he once did with Giuliano. Instead, Leo handpicked a small council to manage Florentine affairs in Lorenzo's name. Even so, this did nothing to help Lorenzo become well-liked. Eventually, Lorenzo decided he was tired of dealing with the Signoria of Florence and begged his uncle to give him his own fiefdom. Since Giuliano, the main opponent of such a project, was now dead, there was nothing standing in their way. Not learning from his predecessors Sixtus IV and Alexander VI, who also tried to give their families their own little dominions, Leo X agreed. It probably helped the decision along that there was a natural target, the Duke of Urbino, Francesco Maria della Rovere. Urbino was a well-fortified town guarded by its own impressive walls in the surrounding Apennine Mountains. It grew over the course of the Middle Ages. Since the 12th century, with a couple of brief interruptions, the area was ruled in the name of the popes by the Montefeltro family, who finally got the title of Duke in 1443. Besides being one of the key fortresses of the Papal States, Urbino was also one of the most celebrated centers of the Renaissance. With the death of Duke Guidobaldo, the Montefeltro line died out and Urbino was passed on to Guidobaldo's nephew, Francesco Maria. Leo X apparently had some kind of grudge against Francesco Maria, even though he was also the nephew of his friend and one-time mentor and benefactor, Pope Julius. It might have been because Julius had ordered Francesco to send his army to support the Medici restoration, but Francesco had refused. Leo also had legitimate reasons to depose Francesco as both his overlord and the Pope. It was strongly suspected that Francesco was involved in the assassination of a cardinal, and he was implicated in a foreign plot against the papacy. 
Still, though, given that Pope Julius was basically responsible for Leo X's rise in the Church and the restoration of the Medici, many contemporaries were outraged by Leo's shocking ingratitude toward the Della Rovere's and his willingness to strip a Della Rovere of his rightful inheritance for the sake of his inept nephew. Duke Guidobaldo's widow, Elisabetta, even traveled to Rome to declare she was on Francesco's side, and that it was wrong for Leo to raise a hand against the family that once supported him. She even brought up that she herself had held Lavenzo on her lap when he was an infant. Despite her arguments, Leo X went ahead, excommunicating Francesco and declaring him deposed. Leo X sent an army to claim Urbino for his nephew. Despite its impressive fortifications, Urbino was captured without much of a fight. But taking Urbino was one thing. Keeping Urbino was something else entirely. Already in January of the next year, 1517, Francesco della Rovere led an army back to Urbino, supported by mercenaries that he paid out of his own pockets and by the Republic of Venice. Leo had to deploy a Florentine army along with mercenaries, among them a mercenary company commanded by his cousin, Giovanni of the Black Bands. The army managed to hold Urbino long enough that Francesco Maria ran out of his own money to pay his army. However, Lorenzo was hit by a bullet during a siege and fled back to Florence to recuperate, leaving the actual war for his newfound duchy in other people's hands. Worse, the Florentines were well aware that Leo was spending the city's money and its citizens' lives just for a pet project for his nephew. When Leo had become Pope, it was a moment of pride that a son of Florence could become the Pope. Now, though, the war for Urbino made it look like Florence was being reduced to a vassal of the papacy. Nor was it a good look that at almost the same time Pope Leo was committing men and firepower to ousting the nephew of the Pope who had once defended Italy from the barbarians. Italy was once again being threatened from the outside. French forces under King Francois once more occupied Milan. Pope Julius must have been rolling in his grave or, more likely, bellowing and cursing. In the meantime, sometime around 1513, Niccolò Machiavelli had finished work on a book he first titled Of Principalities, but which would become known as The Prince. Even though the Medici recently had him arrested on accusations of being involved in a conspiracy, Machiavelli dedicated the book to Giuliano. After Giuliano died, the book was dedicated instead to Lorenzo. In his dedication, Machiavelli wrote with the utmost flattery, Desiring, therefore, to present myself to your magnificence with some testimony of my devotion towards you, I have not found among my possessions anything which I hold more dear than, or value so much as, the knowledge of the actions of great men, acquired by long experience in contemporary affairs and a continual study of antiquity, which, having reflected upon it with great and prolonged diligence, I now send, digested into a little volume, to your magnificence. By the standards of the time, the advice Machiavelli laid out in the Prince was shockingly pragmatic, a ruler should, if possible, cultivate a reputation for benevolence and generosity, 
something usually recommended by both Christian and humanist writers. But Machiavelli added one provision. They should also be willing to do evil. Hence it is necessary for a prince wishing to hold his own to know how to do wrong and to make use of it or not according to necessity. Likewise, it's better to be seen as merciful, but cruelty is sometimes needed to stop potential revolts and assassination attempts. This discussion leads Machiavelli to one of the more notorious quotes from his masterwork. Upon this, a question arises, whether it be better to be loved and feared, or feared than loved. It may be answered that one should wish to be both, but because it is difficult to unite them in one person, it is much safer to be feared than loved, when of the two, either must be dispensed with. The prince would go on to have such an impact that Machiavelli's name would become an adjective in multiple languages. Arguably, no writer before Machiavelli wrote so cynically about politics. For example, he bluntly depicted religion as just a tool rulers in the past, including the great prophet Moses, used to keep their peoples in line. No wonder why historians, philosophers, and political scientists still debate over the book and what Machiavelli's exact intentions in writing it were. One philosopher, Mary Dietz, in her essay Trapping the Prince, went so far as to argue the book was meant as a work of sabotage to get the Medici to do things that would once again get them overthrown. Personally, I don't agree with this interpretation, but it's a testimony to how revolutionary the prince was and how it still doesn't quite fit in with the other works of its time that such theories can sound convincing. In any case, we have no proof that Lorenzo ever actually read a single sentence of the prince. There's a certain irony in having a history-making book still debated centuries later and with a dedication to you, and you probably never even touched it. Anyway, I had to put it off, but everyone's favorite ascetic German, Martin Luther, will finally show up next episode. Until then, thank you for listening, and buona notte.